Hey there, it's Dr. Nazanin Mo'oli, and I want to chat with you about a key ingredient for a fabulous date night, feeling sexy. And come on, let's be real. What you wear plays a big part in how you rock that confidence. That's why I'm thrilled to introduce you to Quince. Quince brings you premium European linen dresses, blouses, and shorts starting at just $30, along with washable silk tops, 40-carat gold jewelry, and more. And guess what? All of their goodies are priced 50 to 80% lower than similar brands. By teaming up directly with top factories, Quince skipped the middleman and hands us the saving. Plus, they stick to factories with safe, ethical practices and top-notch fabrics and finishes. How awesome is that? Picking from Quince's website was tough because they have a ton of fabulous choices. I ended up going for their 100% washable silk sleep dress in champagne. And let me tell you, my husband was floored. He's convinced whoever rocks this is in for a blast. I'm going to record some content on that dress so you can see how fabulous is that dress. Elevate your date night style with Quince. Pop over to quince.com slash sexology for free shipping on your order and 365-day returns. That's quince.com slash sexology to get free shipping and 365-day returns. quince.com slash sexology. Welcome to Sexology, a podcast that untangles the science of sex and pleasure. And now, with this week's episode, your host, clinical psychologist, Dr. Nazanin Moali. Hello. You are listening to Episode 8 of Sexology Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Nazanin Moali. Since I launched this podcast last month, Many of you guys contacted me and asked me to talk about the issue, which is a little bit controversial. Many of you guys wanted to know whether it is possible for someone to have a healthy sexuality while they are recovering from sexual addiction. The other people wanted to kind of learn more about sexual addiction, and they wanted to explore it through a sex-positive concept. For those of you who are not familiar with the controversy, the issue is many therapists within the field of psychology, they have concern. They think that sex addiction model encourages repression of natural urges. They think it's uh, limiting and they think that it tries to push people to have monogamous heterosexual relationship and kind of view it above all other type of sexual expression. Based on my experience, that is not true. Many of my colleagues that they are working in the field of sex addiction, they are coming from a sex positive background and they have number of tools that they can use and support the clients, whether it's through the addiction model or if it's not addiction, from other psychological tool that they have. Our guest today is Duane Osterlin. Duane has over eight years of experience as a therapist helping individuals find hope and healing. He received his master's degree in marriage and family therapy 
from California State University, Long Beach. He has also trained with Dr. Patrick Carnes. For many of you guys that you heard about Dr. Carnes, he's one of the founder of Sexual Addiction Model and is one of the advocates for this field. He was one of the advocates for field of sexual compulsivity and sexual addiction and treatment. Duane is a member of the California Association of Marriage and Family Therapists and the Society of Sexual Health. His clinical focus is on treating individuals and couples struggling with process addictions using a mindfulness and task-centered approach. Currently, he facilitates the men's sexual addiction process group. This is my conversation with Duane Osterland. Welcome back to another episode of Sexology Podcast. Our guest today is Duane Osterland. He's a marriage and family therapist certified in sex addiction. Duane, welcome to our show. Oh, thank you very much for having me. I really appreciate it. I'm so excited to have you on today. We're going to talk about healthy sexuality after recovering from hypersexual and or sexual addiction. So let us start with kind of talking about should people identify hypersexual disorder as an addiction? Um, I think that's a very, very interesting question. You know, I, I, when they started to look at like sex addiction and they really wanted to start to classify it, that's where they began to, when they were looking to put it in the DSM, that's where they came up with the term hypersexual disorder, mainly because they were still looking at the criteria for addiction and they weren't sure if it, and then there was a lot of, um, you know, using the term uh, sex addiction had a, had a little bit of controversy about it. Um, some people kind of felt that it might be sex negative. And so, you know, when they started to look at like, well, maybe this is more using the term hypersexual disorder, maybe it fits it better. But when you kind of look at them both together, to me, they kind of mean the same thing almost, if that makes sense. I know there's nuances about it that are different, but I think that you can kind of look at them both together in the same lens, um, especially when we look at the criteria of how we classify someone when they're struggling with sex addiction or hypersexual disorder. Okay. And I was thinking about one of the things that I sometimes hear, one of the arguments is that some people kind of think about sexuality, you know, they're thinking about we all have different sexual interests. Our human sexuality is very complicated and complex. So how can we recognize and distinguish someone who has a very diverse taste in sexuality than someone that has struggling with sexual addiction? I think that's a, that's an excellent question and, and gets asked quite a lot. The thing is about when we're looking at like sex addiction, we're looking at the addictive component. We're not looking at what type of behavior somebody is doing. That That's not how we define sex addiction. So even if somebody is involved in, you know, alternative sexuality or kink or fetishism or or something like that, that doesn't necessarily make anybody a sex addict. When we're looking at sex addiction, we're looking at that compulsive component of the behavior that um, that they're doing that's causing a lot of life distress. Right. So it's more about from what I'm hearing, and please correct me if I'm wrong, but it's more about how their behavior impacting their various aspects of their lives. Yeah, ex exactly. And the, and the compulsive nature of it. You know, when we look at sex addiction, we're looking at several criteria for that. 
And when I, when I kind of look at it, I'm, I'm looking at, you know, three main domains that a person comes into the office. So when a person comes into the office and they're like, you know, I think I'm struggling with sex addiction, I really want to look at that because, uh, you know, sex addiction is a term that a lot of times is very known in the culture. And so someone, you know, can be uncomfortable with their sexuality, but that, you know, and they want to stop that for some reason, whatever their reason is. But it doesn't mean that they're necessarily a sex addict. So you have to look at that and be able to look at that criteria and, and really help them understand what's going on. So what are some of those criteria that you're kind of explore when you want to see if someone is struggling with sexual addiction or not? Well, I, I, I break it into like three main domains. And this comes out of uh, a lot of the hypersexual behavior disorder work and, and the sex addiction work. But the three main domains that I look at are, are they using sex as their primary coping mechanism in their life? You know, when they're dealing with uncomfortable mood states or emotions, is sex where they go consistently to change and alter that? It, does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. So they, they tend to use that as their primary way of coping with all of life's discomfort. You know, and if, if they're struggling with depression or they have a lot of, you know, shame centered around the, the self, sex becomes a, an easy way for them to escape that. And so that's one of the domains is like coping. Another one is that they continue to do this despite consequences. So they may be losing their relationship because of their sexual behavior and they don't want to do it. They don't, they don't want those consequences, but they keep coming back to using sex as a way to cope. And so the consequences don't help them change their behavior, if that makes sense. So a person who, who may not be a sex addict, you know, they may engage in this behavior and realize, you know, this is really destructive. I'm going to stop. I'm going to change it. I'm going to do something different. A sex addict says the same thing, but then they don't stop. You know, the consequences don't kind of feed back and say, hey, I need to change. They just can't. This is the way they cope. Right. And then sometimes I see that there are some changes on the frequency of the acting out behavior that people mm -hmm. engage in. And so is it usually a straight line that like it just goes down or it can get more like less intense and get worse? What is the pattern that you see there? Well, that, that kind of goes into the third domain, which is control. Okay. Right. So they've made, they make tons of efforts to, or a lot of efforts to try and control their behavior. So they may shift it in a way, they may change it, they may try something different, and it kind of morphs over time, but they're always making these efforts to try and stop it. You know, they're trying to make these efforts to change it, yet they're, they continue to kind of fail. So it kind of can shift and, and move around, but they keep coming back to those consequences and those coping, that you know, the coping, and it keeps leading to kind of more and more destruction as they try and shift and change it. Um, so the way it looks can change over time. Right. So it is uh, like the quality, the kind of a behavior, and also the relationship with the acting out behavior might change. Yes, it, it definitely. And it does over time. You know, a lot of clients that come into my office, um, you know, the behavior starts in a certain way. And then as they engage in that behavior, they also can have, they might have to look for more intensity. So uh, behavior that maybe started on the internet turns into web chatting, turns into meeting people at a hotel room or prostitution or escorts or massage parlors. And it, it escalates in that way, um, if that kind of makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. And do you see any gender differences in that? 
I think, you know, I think there, there is some gender differences sometimes, but, you know, we're, we're beginning to see uh, it can be for both people. It can be a little bit different for, for women. We see a lot on the relationship side, but that's also changing with the internet too. Um, we're seeing a lot of women come in who are struggling with pornography as well. So, you know, it used to be think that just, you know, men and porn and that was what it was, but we're seeing for both genders that we're seeing, we're seeing that happen as well. So there are some differences, but um, a lot of times it can be very similar. Yes. And sometimes when I hear clients talking about sometimes with female, they identify more with love addiction and we explore it more. I hear more like sexual addiction. How do you distinguish between love and sex addiction? I think when when we're looking at love addiction, we're looking at that component of um, I don't know if you're familiar with like Helen Fisher's work, right, right, absolutely. Um, where you know that that's that you know you have the lust and then you have the romantic stage, the heightened romantic stage of of relationship building before you get to attachment. You see a lot of the uh, it manifests in that stage. So there's this new relationship. The relationship is very intense. It kind of takes them out. This is the relationship that's going to be the one that's going to fix everything. It's going to be the one that's finally going to be right. It's going to so they they kind of stay in that zone, um, and they have a lot of that intensity. And then the relationship falls apart, and then they find another one, and they kind of try and keep it in that zone all the time. And they don't know how to move quite to the attachment phase of a relationship. Great. So there are it's more about the relationship from what I'm hearing. Yeah, I, I think so. I, I think that's a that's generally that's what we see. Okay, and I know there people sometimes compare the brain pathway. I know we're talking about it briefly before the interview between people who are talking uh, struggling with sexual addiction and people are struggling with a chemical addiction. What are some of the uh, things that you know and read about this area? Well, I think you know when we look at this, we look at this as kind of a, a chronic disease of the brain uh, reward system, the motivation system, the memory system, and all that related circuitry. So. People are, are using, you know, if they're using a behavior or a substance, they're using that to change how they're, the state of their body. There's an inherent discomfort in it. So um, I think what we're beginning to see is, is how they manipulate that within the brain, how they manipulate that reward circuitry to get them out of a feeling that they don't want to be in. They don't like being in. And a lot of times I think for addicts, I, I see for sex addicts, I see, you know, the arousal of the addiction keeps them from actually feeling the discomfort that's behind that arousal, if that makes sense. So a lot of times they come in, I'm, I'm just I'm just really, really sexual. I, I just I just love sex. And so I, I don't you know, which is a good thing. I mean, it's good to love sex, but this is what they they see. And then as they kind of move away from their addictive behavior they begin to experience the undercurrent of these deeper feelings that they're running from, that they don't realize they're running from because they've hidden it in arousal the whole time. Right. So as, as you were talking about it earlier, it's just more about coping with those like demon inside versus mm -hmm. then like enjoying the sex and being connected to their partners. Right. And, that, and, and the connection is another part of it. With most of the people that come in with sex addiction, they have a very, very hard time um, having any um, deep relationships. Um, you know, they, they can be married and, and they can know people, but there's always a part of them that never quite feels fully connected to another person. So a lot of times they're very, very lonely, even in a very busy life. So they can have sex with a lot of people, but really feel very alone. And 
that's that, um, you know, for, for, for sex addiction, a lot of the people that come in have had early childhood trauma. So their, their ability to know how to connect to others, it doesn't, doesn't work very well. And so a lot of about recovery is repairing that, uh, helping them learn to really connect to other people and form deep, meaningful relationships. That is fantastic. And I'm thinking about then sometimes people kind of, they're scared to, getting, to get the diagnosis or get labeled with sex addiction because they think that is something that's, then that's who you are and you cannot change it. So when someone comes to your office, someone who's struggling with sex addiction, what are some of the stages of recovery? Well, I think for most people, by the time they get to our office, they're in crisis. Um, you know, because there's so much shame with sex addiction and it's so hidden and, and a lot of them, you know, they have really a double life. They have this sex addiction life and they're acting out. They might be having sex with prostitutes a couple times a week or escorts or massage parlors. And then they have their other life, their work life, their family life, and the two do not meet at all. What happens a lot when they come to our office is somehow those two lives have met and they're in crisis. They get discovered, they get arrested, they lose a job. So most of the people that are coming in are in some kind of deep crisis. And they're now faced with the consequences. The consequences, they cannot put the consequences off anymore. So they're faced with those consequences. So they're really kind of in this shock stage. And so that's where we start with them. And that also gives us the ability to say, hey, you know, you're in this crisis, let's invest in helping you. That's really, you know, this is a time that you can take this opportunity to dig in and learn about what's going on with you and start to build a life that you really want. So they start there. And then, you know, as they move that, that that's a good six months to a year of, of work because the consequences are usually pretty great, you know. And then as, as they as they start to kind of get a sobriety, they get the consequences under control, they start to do repair, they really start to to start to build a life that they they want, you know, that they really, they, they start to begin to feel good about. And I love when you talked about, it takes about like, obviously different for people, but six months to a year, because sometimes I, I see people uh, go to treatment for like when they're in crisis and like they go to 30 day program or they get few sessions of therapy and they say, oh, I'm cured and, or I addressed it. And unfortunately, from what I'm hearing, it's not necessarily usually the case. No, that's usually not the case. And and what a lot a lot happens is we do get people that they do a um they they do go to inpatient and then they don't do any outpatient afterwards. And then in a year or two, they're back in the office again going, Okay, I'm really ready to commit to this work. This is a slow process of change. I mean, when you look at the affect dysregulation that these clients have. They really need to have some healthy relationships with a therapist, healthy relationship with maybe a, a good recovery group uh, that they can make that repair uh, to themselves and really start to care about themselves. And I like when you're talking about recovery groups because I know sexual addiction can feel like very lonely and isolating and like being part of a group that they can talk about it and see that sometimes the shared experience with other members can be very healing. Oh, oh, very. And, you know, when uh, a lot of the, the clients here, you know, the group is their primary, th that's what they love the most. You know, because most of them have not had deep relationships with other people. 
and they've never shared all of themselves. So in these groups, they really get to become vulnerable. These groups, these groups of um, men, they, they get to know each other in deep ways that no one else in their life has ever known. And they value those groups. And sometimes they're in those groups for quite a long time, you know, maybe two or even three years because they value them so much. I, it's a good model for like seeing how the relationship could be and how is it like I always say group therapy is a small lab that you can kind of practice those skills. Oh, exactly. And they get to do that and they get to be honest with each other and confront each other and they learn how to have healthy, intimate relationships. So when I know one of the things that some sex addiction therapists recommend is a period of abstinence. So if someone is in their relation, is not in a committed relationship, when they know they're ready for relationship? When do they know that they're ready? Um, you know, that's so individual. It's hard to say and put a time on that, you know, but usually, you know, what, what we do is, is we ask for a time of abstinence in the beginning. This gets them some distance from their sexual behavior and actually helps them kind of look back at it and start to decide, you know, how do, you know, what is my sexuality and what does my sexuality look like and what do I want it to look like and, and, you know, how am I in it? But they have some distance to look look back. But, you know, that's, it's such a, that's such an individual process. It's hard to say that there's a concrete time to do that, if that makes sense. No, absolutely. And I know peoples are different based on the history of trauma they had, the experiences they had, and sometimes with the consequences they had. Yes. Yeah. And, and for, if they're in a significant relationship and there's been a lot of betrayal in that relationship, uh, for the partner, they need a lot of time to heal. Uh, to really feel safe. And they really have to see that in the addict's behavior. They have to see that the addict has really committed to changing before they can really begin to trust and and feel comfortable in the relationship. And, and, and that is even like a year to two year process. And especially for the partner, because it's extremely traumatic. Absolutely. I know we talked about about it in the previous episodes, and I know how challenging it is for many of the partners who learn it's so traumatic and hurtful it is. And it's very important to address those things. Oh, definitely. And and they need they need their own support. And it's almost unique to them because they're really going through almost a PTSD response. Yes. And uh, what is then the healthy sexuality? What does it look like for people after recovering from addiction? I, I think for people who are in recovery after it, it's, it's, they have an ability to be honest with themselves about what it is that their sexuality is for them. They're able to have sexuality in intimate relationships that are open and discussed and talked about. So they're really deciding for themselves what that is, but they've had an open conversation about it. And they've been able to talk about it and they've been able to look at the pros and cons of all their choices in their sexual behavior and decide for themselves what it is that fits for them. So there's an openness to it. When, when they're in addiction, there's the compulsiveness of it that's very different. It's hidden. There's a lot of shame about it. When they're, in, when they're more in their healthy sexuality, the shame is, um, you know, they may have still have work on shame around their sexuality and stuff, but they're, they're more open. They're talking about it. They're looking at it. They're being honest with themselves about it. They're being honest with their partner about it. They're working with, if they're in a relationship, they're working with their partner on it and their partner's working with them. And they really get to begin to enjoy their sexuality 
in a way in which they can really connect with each other. So there's a sense of intimacy about it that they may never have had with their sexuality in the past. Which I hear sometimes my clients say it, it is more powerful, more pleasurable, and they find it like long-term more rewarding. Yeah, well, they get to have that connection that they always have been seeking and unable to get. Yes. And uh, this is a question I know that we haven't looked into the research, but when you were talking about it, I was thinking about the demographic. How, how much diversity do you see in the people that's, that they're coming to your practice? In what way? What do you mean? As far as like, you know, whether, because I know sometimes sexual addiction, people think about higher SES, wealthy men. Who are, who are struggling with this issue. And that those are the main people who are kind of portrayed. Yeah, we, you know, I, I, I think we have to kind of look at that um, as a whole. But, you know, we see all, all ethnicities and um, all socioeconomic scales coming into our office. Uh, they may present a little bit differently, but, um, you know, we, we, we see it Im- impact across the spectrums. People coming to us and asking for help, right? And it's I, and I think having a proper education about it's very interesting because sometimes I get some people want to come in and when they say, "Oh, I discovered my husband or my wife has been unfaithful," and then when we and I think she or he has an addiction, but then when they come in, we notice that's not the case. So people kind of have this misinformation mm-hmm. about addiction, yes. and whoever is yeah. unfaithful, they probably have an addiction. Right. And, and that's why it's really important to, you know, ha- have a, an accurate assessment done um, because that, that's, it's, it's an easy label to throw onto something that might not be there. And, you know, we, we've had people come in who, you know, I, I think I'm a sex addict. And when we really do the assessment, it's like, I don't think you are. I think let's, let's look at the shame around your sexuality, maybe, or your, your beliefs and, and explore that, you know, maybe it's not uh, you know, sexual compulsivity. And I think, as you say, it's very important. It's not like whoever comes for assessment of sexual addiction will get the diagnosis. It's oh, definitely people. not. And that would be, you know, that just wouldn't be right. I mean, you, you really have to, <laughs> to look at that and, and, and make sure that this, this fits for them. And that's why we look at the domain. We have a lot of the screening materials to kind of really help do that differential diagnosis so that you, you, you can really see it. Yes, and I know sometimes there are, like in some trainings, they talk about three-circle model. Uh, like, mm-hmm. you know, feel what is what is a healthy behavior look like? What is a gray area? Do you use that in your treatment? Uh, we do. We do use a, a, a three-circle plan. It, it helps for, for someone who going, who's going through this, it helps them create a concrete structure with, in which to start to make the behavior changes they want to make. But what we always say with this and part of this process is, you know, that that three circle plan that they make with like their middle circle, which is behaviors they don't want to do. Uh, middle circle are kind of boundary behaviors. And then the outside circle is healthy sexual behaviors that they want to or healthy life behaviors that they want is that that's always a fluid document for them. But it gives them a structure within which to work so that they can start to to you know, manage their behavior in a way that they can look at that's concrete because most of the time it's been so out of control that they don't have any structure and they don't know how to do it in a way that they can start to kind of build the life that they want and be strategic in their behavior choices. 
And I like when you were talking about that is a fluid document, because I know as people evolve in their recovery, they, there might be that they can change those some of those behaviors, if they're like more reflecting on that, so okay, I'm, I'm feeling better around this, or they can add stuff when they learn more about their challenges. Yeah, definitely. And it usually starts pretty, you know, pretty tight. And then as they as they move through their recovery, they start to look at their sexuality and explore their sexuality, and it starts to change and uh, become different and maybe more open. And they begin to look at their behavior and add behaviors to it that feel right for them now. Wonderful, and it seems like you have you are a wealth of knowledge in this uh, area, and I oh, know you. you have groups and different services. So if someone want to get in contact with you, what would be the best way to reach you? Uh, they can go to our website. Our website is uh, novusmindfullife.com, and that's N-O-V-U-S-M-I-N-D-F-U-L-L-I-F-E.com, and they can find me there. They can also look up uh, my podcast called The Addicted Mind, and that's at theaddictedmind.com. So there's two ways to get a hold of me. Wonderful. And I'll make sure that I leave a, uh, put it on the show notes so people are able, if they miss that for some reason or they're driving, they can click on the notes. So thank you. Oh, great. You. Yeah. And they can ask me any questions they want. I'm always open to that. Wonderful. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much. I've really enjoyed it. I hope you found this interview helpful and it answered some of your questions about sexual addiction. As many of you guys know, I'm coming from a background that is conservative. I'm coming from a sex negative background. And whenever I hear someone saying that you need to change your sexual behavior, I get this strong negative emotion. But my understanding is that the treatment of sexual addiction is not about changing the specific behavior or changing people's sexual preferences. It's about helping them to change how they cope with stress and helping them to gain control in their life. Unfortunately, many of my clients who are coming into my practice with issues around sexual compulsivity, they cope with their stress, their depression, their trauma using sex. And it adds to their level of troubles and it causes them to make choices that's not incongruent with who they are. And they're able to truly connect with their partners after recovering from this sexual addiction cycle. At the end, I wanted to thank you guys for listening. If you have any question, you know where to find me. Have a wonderful week. Thanks for listening to Sexology Podcast. For more great content, visit www.sexologypodcast.com. Please be advised that information presented on this podcast is not a substitute for seeking help from a licensed mental health provider.